All right, welcome to another edition of Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave podcast, hashtag SLGND. Today's guest, Mike McKenna. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, we're just going to you know, have a discussion. Basically, let us uh, I know you should be familiar with podcasts. Let's talk about that first. You have your own podcast. Where did that come from? Is this something you always wanted to do? You did it while you were playing? I, did a li- I was doing it actively recording while I was playing, uh, and I didn't really start to release things until later in the year. Uh, I didn't want anybody to have the excuse out there that I'm more worried about that than playing in the NHL. Yeah. Uh, but really the genesis of it was that people have told me for years that with all the stops that I've had in the game, 15 organizations, 22 jerseys, whatever it is, that I should write a book. And that's really not attractive to me because inherently with a book, you're going to throw somebody under the bus or you're going to screw up a story. And I thought, you know what? If I start podcasting, I can take my friends, let them tell their own story, and they live on forever. They don't go away. And it, it started to get really attractive to me to that. And podcasting was becoming more popular. And I, truth be told, I wish I could have started it a year earlier <laughs> because it's a really flooded market now. But uh, So that's kind of how it began. And then my university, where I went to school at St. Lawrence, um, asked me to do one for them. So I've, I've actually had two of them going at once. Yeah. Um, but it really started, I guess, when I was at St. Lawrence. And I did a two-hour radio show every Monday night. I hosted it. Uh, it was Monday Night Metal. I, I am a big heavy metal fan and that's where that no, is in your favorite band from sweden is they that are, correct yeah you've done homework on it it's oh. a band called amana marth uh they are big hockey fans yeah currently play uh it's kind of a subgenre known as viking metal it's all like mm. fantasy stuff but yeah super cool band but yeah so I, that's how it began for me was i'd go on the air for two hours at school and i'd spin some records and and that was it we didn't have communications at st lawrence so no. uh, i became an econ major with a minor in you know Broadcasting that didn't exist. So it's kind of foreshadowed to what you're doing now. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you mentioned a couple things. You said, right, I hate writing. I'd rather talk. This is much easier for me. I'd rather talk and hear the stories. Uh, not much of a writer. Uh, you, you touched on it there. You said it was 15 organizations. Yes. That that is that is quite the run. Uh, it's a you know for a lot of people to think you know playing pro hockey is glamorous. Uh, they don't see a lot of behind the scenes. And uh, you know you you had a tough year last year. A lot of jumps around. How was it and how'd you deal with it? Well, it, honestly, last year was funny because I spent more time in the National Hockey League than I had at any point in my career. I was up for, I think, 55 games, you know, most three quarters of the season, yeah. uh, which is it's gratifying. It's fantastic to be there. It's great to eat Philip Mignon on the plane instead of a soggy sub on the bus in the <laughs> Iron League. But it was a really dark year for our family because... I got called up to Ottawa a month into the season, and my family remained in Belleville, Ontario, and yeah. we lived apart for four months. And I've got two kids that are, at the time, were two and five. They're now three and six, and my daughter was in kindergarten. And, you know, I, there was a point in time where I thought I was going to get some clarity on it, and then I got traded and then claimed off waivers and basically went into hockey purgatory with my family. And so it was not until the end, I guess, the beginning of March that we got everybody back together. Um, and that was tough to go through. But this journey has been absolutely unbelievable. And, you know, we can look back on it now. We got through it. We're happy where we are in life. Uh, but I've got friends all across the world because yeah. of it. I've got a collection of jerseys and masks that's completely unrivaled in the sport. And I love to show those off. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of being a goaltender, too, is you get the mass. That's one thing I'm, you know, I never wanted to play the position, uh, but uh, so you get to do some cool artwork, and especially guys like you, creative, you've got uh, a lot of different interests. And you mentioned the wives. That's behind the scene as a former player. I believe me, I jumped through uh, four different leagues and uh, six different NHL teams, four different, five different minor league teams. So I know exactly what you're talking about, especially doing with kids and uh, the support they give. But uh, let's talk a bit about, 
your beginning. You mentioned you went to St. Lawrence, your first year of pro hockey. I think a lot of people here would be familiar. Uh, maybe. Probably 5,500 people or so. Yeah. I think that's what we average. Las Vegas Wranglers. I, was a, I am a Las Vegas Wrangler alumni. I played two years for the Wranglers, lived off Flamingo Road, practiced at the LVIC, skated onto the ice through a slot machine pulled by a big blue <laughs> mascot named the Duke at the Orleans Arena. Yeah. And we were good. I mean, we finished... I mean, I don't know if we won the I think the second year we won the league regular season. Both years we ended up losing to the eventual Kelly Cup winner in the ECHL. But what a place to come out of school and have your first experience as a professional hockey player. We had so much fun here. And not just because it's Vegas. There's so much to do here. But we had a great team. We had a great coach in Glenn Gulletson, yeah. who's been in the NHL with various teams over the past several years. We had an amazing front office. Everybody got along, which was the yeah. best part. And that's so important. And, you know, we always had something to do on the weekend. But we were having just as much fun hanging out at the apartments, going around town doing different things. And I, I have such a special spot in my heart for Vegas, not just because it was my first stop, but because it was probably the most fun I've ever had playing the game. I think that's really, it's a good point because, you know, I had some stops in the ECHL as well. And when you played, it's interesting that people may not know. And, you know, when you get up in the levels, you pick your own places to live. There, it's basically the whole team's in the same apartment complex. And, and you're absolutely right. I, I think back to some years and, and when you had that, that situation, uh, just that family, that togetherness, uh, now that I've been out of the game, that's what I miss the most when you had those type of years, that connection with your teammates, their families, uh, the wives, the girlfriends, they all got along. It's a really unique situation. It is. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the teams that always played the best were pretty tight off the ice too, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's go back. You can look at year one here where, uh, what was it termed? The Golden Misfits were put together, right. a bunch of guys with chips on their shoulder. Pretty incredible run. Actually, historic run for inaugural season in any pro sports. So, uh, yeah, that is that is so true. The ability to connect not only on the ice, a lot of it comes from off the ice. Yeah, and I look at my runs where I went to, the, I was lucky enough to go to the Calder Cup Finals in the American League twice in a row, two years. And our teams were so close. And our team in Texas two seasons ago was not the most talented team in the field by any stretch. But we played for each other. We had so much fun. We found ways to win. It just felt like there was always a new hero every night, whether it was our fourth line guy or whether it was the guy that was the superstar the whole season. It didn't matter. Somebody was always that guy. But after every round, we had a big barbecue at the field. We played yeah. volleyball together. You know, we, we shared some drinks and food, and we had a great time. And those are what the things that I'll remember just as much as the on-ice fun. Oh, absolutely. I think that those are the memories you take with it as you move along. And we were talking about your mask. Do you have a favorite mask? Ooh, well, I, I really like all mine, uh, to be honest with you. But I think that if I had to pick out personal favorite that probably had the most sentimental reasons it would be my st louis blues mask growing up in st louis being in their organization for a year putting all my creative energies in towards making the perfect mask for my hometown team that one was really really cool but this last one i had with philadelphia this year at the flyers was flat black orange had a little gritty motif on the back and i don't know something about that was just super cool because it was really simple and kind of old school and I'm 36, which I know isn't old to a lot of folks, but for goaltenders, right. But to goaltenders, though, we kind of harken back to those days of the early 90s where guys had a lot of flair with their equipment, whether it was the colored pads or their masks, and everything was different. And, and the positions become, quite honestly, rather generic now. Almost everybody wears white pads, and it's, it's only turned into what their masks look like. So um, us old school guys like that, we're always super into everything and just beyond over-the-top gear nerds. 
So who would have been your favorite the old school goaltender? Would have been the was it uh, Trevor Kidd who started the checker pads, oh, or is there someone else? Well, Kidder had some amazing setups on his gear, and credit to Brian's who always made him for him. That was yeah. the company. He, I think he was really the trendsetter with graphics on pads. Before yeah. that, it, it was very basic where you could kind of pick a couple of colorways and fill them in. He was the guy that put flames on his pads and checkerboards on his pads and just got really creative with it. But some of those old setups, though, that were just so classic. I mean, I think of myself growing up in St. Louis, Curtis Joseph and the old heat and blue and white. And it was just really simple stuff. But it tended to blend in with the, with the, yeah. the jerseys so well. And the masks were clean and you knew who it was. And think about Ed Belfort, Curtis Joseph, Marty Brodeur. You knew who was in the goal when you looked yeah. in from the stands, right? Because their helmet was iconic. Yeah. And that, that's great. Have you seen, what do you think of Marc-Andre Fleury, the gold helmet? Well, I mean, he looks like a knight on yeah, the ice. It's, it's appropriate, cool. right? And it's so awesome when you get a chance with like a really creative colorway like the Golden Knights yeah. have. That Flower can go out there and, and do something in bright gold like that that nobody else in the league can do. I'm sure he's having a blast designing those. Well, he must, yeah. And it is. There's so many people that are just passionate about goalie gear out there. Uh, oh, I was one of those guys. I, as a player, I was, like, I was just happy to get stick skates, glove, helm, whatever. You know, there were certain brands your player wore, but that was all he had as, as a forward, a defenseman. Is not much. You know, it's pretty basic. You can't color it. Uh, you know, maybe someday we'll get to the point where, you know, do you think guys should do individual designs of their helmets? We could be like Europe where you just yeah, put the, you the, the stickers, yeah. the gold helmet. Yeah. In Europe, I think that the, the leading scorer of the league, or they used to at least, they'd put a silver or a gold helmet on the guy. I mean, can you imagine putting a bigger target on somebody to no, get I, run over out there? Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm old school. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm starting to change and, and go with the times and understand things are changing. But yeah, it's, uh, there's some things I like that uh, traditional, let's keep it in the game. Uh, you mentioned St. Louis. Let's talk about, uh, you probably had a chance now to be back and see what this 2019 Stanley Cup win did, not only to St. Louis, to Missouri. Well, myself coming from there, I was the first goaltender ever drafted from St. Louis. I was in the first wave of guys to make the NHL. Cam Jansen was our first hometown bred guy to make the NHL. And now we've got almost probably two dozen. Well, Pat Maroon's pretty good. Pat run. Maroon wins the cup for him. You know, you think of Ben Bishop and uh, and there's just so many guys across the league, Clayton Keller and this young grouping of guys. But it's been there for 50, 60 years. You know, the Blues have been around for a long time. And the Blues fans have been desperate for this. They've yeah. never won a cup. And it's turned into the joke of just one before I die. Yeah. Well, they won. And I honestly, this summer at home in St. Louis is where I make my home in the off season. I thought I was going to have to drive around with a helmet on my head considering all the fireworks going off. Yeah. It was like the 4th of July. And that was another month down the road. It was unbelievable to see. People are painting their lawns with blue notes on them. And it just was really special to see your hometown and your friends be so excited about a sport other than baseball because that's that's old hat in St. Louis. They've seen World Series for years and they've never had a cup and now they've got one. I think it's pretty tremendous and I think you always see, you know, from both of us former players, love to see the growth of the game and we're certainly seeing that here in Vegas. It has exploded, but this is a, you know, a new hockey town. St. Louis, an old hockey town, you are telling me a little earlier that it's, it's still starting to boom and, and this just elevates that with them winning the cup. Absolutely. It goes back to your previous question about St. Louis, Missouri and it expands the footprint when things like that happen happen because you know we've had 20 something rinks in the area and and it's ebbed and flowed you know when Brett Hull was potting 70 90 goals or whatever he was people were showing up and it it created a big big boom in my era too we had Joseph and Nett Hull scoring all these goals but I have all my friends now asking me how do I get my kid in hockey yeah 
you know and these are people I may have played street hockey with but they never played organized hockey and that's just amazing to me you know my grandfather was one of the founding fathers of hockey in town with 10 other guys mm-hmm. they used to have to drive two hours to get to a rink that didn't have that had boards yeah. you know he'd be rolling over in his grave if he saw what was going on yeah. now and, and it resonates you know Kansas City other parts of, of Missouri it really does and I hey, I'm all for that the, the sport of hockey to continue to grow everywhere it can possibly um, a lot of guys I talked to that played and for you and I, I know I certainly have mine what was your ah or wow moment when you played was it your first game second game uh, did that happen for you and when and what was it if we're talking National Hockey League moments, yeah, so I got let's talk. two good ones. Uh, the first one was my first NHL game I ever played. Yeah, I had never had an NHL contract until the day before I played. I was in my fourth year pro. I'd never had an entry level, and I ended up outplaying my goalie partner in, in Norfolk. I got an NHL contract. They were going to call me up to back up Mike Smith for the rest of the year in Tampa Bay because yeah. Olaf Kolzig was hurting out. So I show up, and it turns out Mike Smith's hurt too. And my other goalie partner shows up, Kari Ramo, and he had played some games before this. So he yeah. started him the night in Long Island, and I'm backing up. And I'm, I'd never even played a preseason game, right? <laughs> so I'm like, this is great, you know? And there's only like 7,000 people in the stands because it's a huge snowstorm. Yeah. Well, three quick ones go in midway through the second. And I see Rick Tockett, who was our coach in Tampa, looking over the crowd because you sit in the corner in Nassau Coliseum, yeah. looking over the crowd, waving to me to come on the ice. And I'm like this is it this is going to happen and I went out there and I didn't really think about it It, I mean there were less people than there were in Hershey sometimes that's the best way to approach it yeah totally no pressure but the next night was truly my aha moment where this is real because I had to start the next night in Pittsburgh Uh, first shot I faced was a two on one with Crosby and I looked up and I went I know who this person is shooting on me and hope this goes well and I made that save the game went on. We ended up losing in overtime. Um, Gary Roberts sucker punched Matt Cook late in the third, and they scored twice in the power play, and it uh, didn't end up in a win. But that was really the moment, though, looking up and thinking, here's the best player in the world coming down on a two-on-one a minute and a half into the game. You're in the show, kid. That's fantastic. Those are those are the ones you want to bank in the memory and, and not forget. To, and you look at the game today, and for you mentioned you, so many years – You've been able to see it evolve. I certainly, you know, playing broadcasting, it's 20 years for me now. It's, or more, uh, 25, sorry. That's going to really age me. Uh, uh, but but just uh, the evolution of the game. What do you think of the state of the game, where it's at right now? I love the skill level of this. Uh, I do miss a little bit of the old school rough and tumble. Uh, but I also know the place of that is stuck in a time where we also didn't understand what it was doing to some of us at times. So I understand both sides of it, but you look at how skilled players are, how fast the games become. It's amazing to see, you know, these kids at 10, 12, 13 years old, they're working with personal coaches and trainers and the skill level's just never been higher. And from a goalie's perspective, the level and the quality of goaltending is through the roof. I've never seen it anything like this where is that the position that's maybe changed the most? I think it has. I think it did certainly, probably from 
1990 to about yeah. 2015. Yeah. And I think we've gotten to a point where we all have such a technical base that we're yeah. pretty similar. And I think now, though, that the forwards and their skill level, what they're doing oh. in that training, so, yeah. they've taken As it. As a former D-man, I'm happy to be on the sidelines. Oh, because you could get turnstiled with these guys. Yes. I can't even fathom playing, you yeah. know, out skating out with them. So I, I love the speed of the game. I love the. I love it. I, I do wish we had a little more personality sometimes. And I think it's coming, though. If players are finally coming out of their shells and 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 allowing fans to see who yeah. they are as human beings I, I like to know when, when they started uh making goalies six foot seven six foot eight uh, i remember that you know i remember i like we went i was part of stanley cup team with tim thomas who was five ten maybe five eleven you just now they seem to be growing the goalies just as large yeah massive well i'll put it this way i got drafted in 2002 by the national predators and they didn't sign they signed some guy named pecker rene instead yeah, of me yeah um it seems to have worked out for both he did all right yes. yeah it's yeah, not a bad career yeah. uh but in any case when i was drafted i was a big goalie who could handle the puck. Yeah. I was six foot two. Yeah. And now the average size goalie, average, not even tall, average is like six two and a half. It's crazy. So suddenly I'm an average goalie and everybody else can handle the puck pretty well because they put that stupid trapezoid in to simplify everything for goalies. I better get better. And that was my struggle my whole career was to make sure I was constantly advancing my game and trying to be up on the latest trends and do what everybody else could just to make sure I kept my head above water and could keep getting jobs. It's funny how the goalies, the, the size is growing. I remember as a D-man, you always wanted big, strong. Now the D-man have gone down, you, you know, looking for puck moving defensemen. It's size doesn't matter now in, in the forward or defense position. Right. It's about playing the game, the skating ability, skill, as you mentioned. It's uh, uh, But goalies do seem to be the one position that is getting larger. I want to change subjects here as we as we wrap it up. I know you know Dan Duva very well, the Sicilian soundbite. Did you give him that nickname? I did. I coined it, and I'll tell you this. I called him that for probably every bit of two weeks, not really knowing if he was Sicilian or not. Uh, and I hate to say that, but he just had that look about him. I yeah. thought, he's got a Duva, you yeah. know, and then he, he had a beard at 9 in the morning. I'm like, <laughs> this guy's got to be. And sure enough, he yeah. came up to me the one day, I think he's like... Yeah, I've heard you've uh, you've been calling me the soundbite, and I'm like, yeah, Sicilian soundbite, and, yeah. and it's stuck. And people, that, you know, we were using it in Syracuse a little bit, and it's become kind of a tongue-in-cheek nickname. And I love Dan. We had a great yeah. run in Syracuse. We went to the finals together, and he's a, he's a beauty, man. And you uh, get him going, and he's there's no one more fun to be around. Uh, so Duva of the grape, uh, of course, he's <laughs> Italian, Sicilian. There, he, it's perfect. The other thing I wanted to ask, Kane, and this is true because I just got a little. I wanted a tidbit from Duves. Did you win a hamburger contest or? Am I on the right lines? And can you just give me that story here as we wrap it up? I did. I won the Thunderburger competition in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I saw a hobby of mine's cooking. I love yeah. to cook. And I've gotten to be friends with some chefs here and there. And and I learned from them, you know. So I put some heads together. I came up with a little concept I thought was going to do well at this thing. And it was me against like three local chefs in town. And they just wanted a Thunder. Thunderbird player to do it, which was yeah. the American League team yeah. in Springfield at the time. And and I think they figured we'd come and just put something out there and, and they'd probably crown you the winner anyway. Yeah. But I took it to heart. I took it really seriously. And I did a taste testing at my house with teammates a week in advance. I had two different concepts. We picked our winner and we went in and I had my teammates as kind of like my sous chefs yeah. griddling buns, you know, while I'm firing up uh, patties and grilled onions and all this other stuff. And yeah, we won the thing. There was about 
50 people at this place getting free samples. Brian McCabe was there, our director of player personnel. Yeah. It was on a Wednesday. He opened a tab for the guys. Great evening. We won. Uh, that's, a, that's a great memory. So that what was, was the concoction? What was, uh, what was involved on this hamburger? Okay, so we had 80-20 beef chuck that, uh, you know, just lightly salted with that. But then I went with a maple shallot jam that I made. Oh, so, so you are. So okay, I yeah. went sweet and sour on it. I had a maple shallot jam that was kind of sweet. Combined it with the bacon. I had some peppery arugula on it and some roasted garlic aioli I made. And that's what I went with. Buttered the bun, griddled it, and people seem to enjoy it. And and people to this day still ask me to make it when I'm around because I, I did it again in Texas the next year. I changed it a little bit, and they put it on the menu in the rink. Really? So that's I got great. that feather yeah. in my cap, too. That's awesome. <laughs> well, hey, uh, my partner Dave Gosher can't cook worth a lick. He needs some lessons. Maybe we can get that done hereafter. But, uh, Mike, thanks very much for stopping by. Uh, great podcast here as we wrap it up on Sheriff Lawless and Some Guy Named Dave.